1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Timothy Jorgensen about the new book, Spark. The Life of Electricity and the Electricity of Life. A fresh look at electricity and its powerful role in life on Earth. Filled with gripping adventures in scientific exploration, Spark offers an indispensable look at electricity, how it works, and how it animates our lives from within and without. Well, Timothy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Galina.
0: So how are you? How was your week?
1: Uh, very good. We just came off a, a holiday weekend here in the United States. Um, yesterday was Memorial Day. We celebrate that every year in honor of, of soldiers who fought in our wars. And uh, so nice three-day weekend to start the summer. So um, I'm uh, very refreshed and uh, happy to speak with you today.
0: Excellent. So then can you tell us what do you do?
1: Okay. So I am a professor of radiation medicine at Georgetown university in Washington, DC. So, um, I run a graduate program here in health physics and various other pro- professorial duties. And, um, and, uh, that's what occupies my day job.
0: <laughs> and how did you get interested in studying it?
1: Well, you know, I, I, uh, I fell into it actually. Um, I, uh, was in graduate school and I took a course in radiation biology and um, that was the first time that I had ever uh, learned anything about radiation despite all my many years of college and um, I became fascinated in that and I ended up going on to get a PhD in, in radiation health sciences at at the Johns Hopkins University and from there I um did a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard University in Boston. And uh, then I moved to Georgetown University as faculty member, and I have been working here ever since. So um, yeah, so uh, my, I'm a card-carrying radiation biologist and radiation health professional, and um, particularly studying the public health aspects of, uh, of radiation.
0: And what appeals to you about academia?
1: Well, um, academia gives uh, you a lot of freedom to investigate your your intellectual interests, and um, so that has always appealed to me. And so that that certain amount of independence and um, and the high level of uh, scientific uh, inquiry and thought that goes on at a university. So uh, I think I think academia affords uh, people. Uh, to follow their passions both scientifically and professionally so that's why I've stuck it out in academia.
0: And were there mentors along your way that really supported you?
1: Well I had in particular I had a a mentor um, Tom Mitchell at the Johns Hopkins University who who really really supported me and promoted me and opened my eyes to possibilities and opportunities that I never would have thought of on my own so um I credit, uh, him with a lot of my, my success in academia.
0: And what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers?
1: I would say that, um, sometimes when you're early in your career, um, you're unsure of whether the path you're on is, is where, what you want to be. And, um, so a lot of, uh, anxiety over should i be doing this or should i be doing that and my advice to them would be to follow what interests you and um and if you're doing what you're interested in you can't go very far astray
0: so your latest book is spark the life of electricity and the electricity of life so what inspired you to write it
1: well actually um as i've as i've already discussed my profession is really a a radiation scientist and um electricity uh is kind of off topic for me but it's not really so um i actually got into book writing uh, by writing a radiation book and the way that that happened was i had no intention of writing any book whatsoever but uh after uh, the accident in fukushima i started being contacted uh by news agencies wanting to interview me about the public health uh, risks associated with the nuclear accident. So I ended up being on a lot of television programs and uh, radio shows in the newspaper uh, with reporters uh, interviewing me about uh, this or that aspect of the health risks of the accident. And from that, my name kind of got out there. So when people started googling radiation and radiation risks my name kept coming up and so um and so they people would call me uh they call me they email me um with their questions about radiation and uh i began to appreciate that Uh, people knew nothing about radiation, and even very highly educated people, um, doctors, lawyers, and other scientific professionals uh, knew nothing about the subject. So I was kind of looking for a book that I could point people to that um, didn't speak in jargon, but um, didn't dumb down the science either, and I couldn't find such a book, and um, eventually I decided that if such a book was going to happen, I would have to write it. So I wrote that book. That book was called Strange Glow, The Story of Radiation. And to my utter amazement and surprise, the book was very successful and very popular. It won a number of of awards uh, and um, got a lot of acclaim and good reviews and et cetera, et cetera. And um, so after that, I was being encouraged by my literary agent. Yes, by that time I had a literary agent and my publisher, which is Princeton University Press, to um, to write another book. But I was not interested in writing another book about radiation. I felt that I had said all that I needed to say about radiation in the first book, and so uh, they encouraged me to find another topic. And uh, what I found when i was doing the background research for strange glow uh, was that there was a lot of, of a you know people in in radiation field have their feet in both the electrical world and the radiation world because there's a there's a back and forth between uh, electricity and radiation. So you can make x-rays with electricity and radiation produces electrons. And so there's a, in order to be in the radiation field, you have to uh, have a foot in both the electrical field as well. So I discovered in doing the research for radiation that there were a lot of um, interesting things about, um, about electricity that I had never realized before. And uh, in fact, people who had read Strange Glow, some of them were interested in the asides about electricity that I mentioned in that book. And so I decided to write a book uh, written in the same style as Strange Glow, but strictly focused on uh, electricity. So that's how I ended up writing Spark. It was, uh, it was basically uh, <laughs> an accident of fate that started out with the, the, the um, radiation accident at Fukushima.
0: All right. So let's delve into the book. And can we start with a very basic, so we know that everybody's on the same page. So can you describe what is electricity? Okay.
1: Well, very simply, uh, uh, electricity has to do with the flow of electrons. And electrons are those small particles, charged particles that surround every atom. And some, uh, some atoms have a very tight grasp of their electrons and other atoms have a weaker grasp of the outer electrons and uh, such as metals. And uh, when that's the case, when the the grasp is weak, uh, if you exert forces on them, you can get those electrons to move, to flow and produce a current. And it is the flow of electrons that is basically electricity. And so um, now I've I've oversimplified it to the point where an electrical engineer probably won't even recognize what I had said, but um, but but by and large I think that this uh, what I, what I've said is um, is an accurate statement in terms of how we experience um, we experience electricity we experience as the flow of electricity usually through metals um, wires and things like that. But of course, we also have experience with electricity, something called static electricity, which isn't moving at all. And that's the buildup of charge on various things. And if anyone's ever gotten a carpet shock, they'll realize that they have had uh, an encounter with static electricity. Of course, uh, static electricity uh, um, uh, develops inside storm clouds and ultimately results in lightning, things like that. Um, And each of these processes uh, is relatively complex but the fundamentals of electricity uh, are that um, when charge starts to move, we have electricity.
0: So when did we discover electricity?
1: Well, that's an interesting thing because um, I don't know how it is in the rest of the world, but in in the United States, um, a lot of credit is given to a man named Benjamin Franklin for just about everything. And, And Benjamin Franklin was a major player uh, in the in the scientific field of electricity, uh, and of course he lived in the early 1700s, and um, he is most famous for flying a kite and um, and drawing uh, static electricity down the kite string um, to his hand and and uh, collecting that electricity in a jar, and so because of that story and because of his fame a lot of people believe erroneously (laughs) that Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity. Benjamin Franklin did not discover electricity. Electricity had been known for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. um, And it had been studied scientifically for at least a hundred years prior to uh, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, But, but uh, recently there's a, a, uh, some of your listeners may know of the documentaries by uh, Ken Burns. He's done a number of, uh, of award-winning documentaries, and recently he did one on Benjamin Franklin. And uh, even in that documentary, <laughs> they get it wrong. They say that Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity. He did not discover electricity. What he did do, though, was he, he, um, he, he uh, educated himself on all the what, what was known about electricity of the day, and so we're talking about uh, in in the time period around um, 1750, and um, he, so he collected all the information he could about what was known scientifically about uh, about electricity, and he started doing his own experiments, and. Uh, People's ideas, scientific ideas about what electricity was, was very, very crude. And some of them didn't make any sense at all. And he came um, up with a theory of electricity called the single fluid model. And in this single fluid model, he believed that there was a a fluid, some type of fluid-like substance that was contained in uh, in all materials. And again, he's specifically talking about static electricity because that's all they really knew about at the time. And he claimed that if you rubbed one material against a different type of material, that some of that fluid would rub off and it would wanna get back to its original spot. And so this fluid would be moved from from one thing, let's say glass to silk, and then would wanna go back to the glass. And so it would jump back and it would produce a spark And um, so this was this single fluid model of electricity, and it explained a lot of things that that weren't explained before. And Benjamin Franklin is credited with things that we we uh, terms we associate with electricity, Uh, for example, battery. But battery meant something different to him than what what it means to us, and current, uh, and positive and negative charge. Um, All of those things. So positive charge to him was was something that had an excess of fluid and negative charge was something that had a deficiency of fluid. And all of these terms that Benjamin Franklin created as part of his his, um, scientific investigations have come to us today. And um, back to his kite experiment, what he was trying to do with the kite experiment was to confirm that I mean, people suspected that clouds had electricity in them for, 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 for a long time because uh, a, a lightning bolt looks like a big spark, right? And so uh, people suspected it, but they weren't sure it was exactly the same thing as what they knew as static electricity. And so what he did, he, he decided to collect that uh, charge, that, that uh, static electricity from clouds by, put, by sending a kite, a kite up to the sky Uh, in the proximity of a a storm cloud, having the electricity come down the kite wire and go into a jar, something called a Leyden jar. A Leyden jar was the only way to store electricity at the time. It was invented uh, in the city of Leyden, the University in Leyden, the Netherlands. And um, it basically was a uh, a mayonnaise jar lined inside and out with uh, with foil. And um, you have the outside of the jar uh, somehow grounded uh, with a chain or a wire, and the inside would have an electrode sticking out on top. And if you touched static electricity to the, to the top electrode, electricity would go into the jar and be stored there. And so what he did was he collected, uh, he collected uh, static electricity from the clouds, and then he took the jar back to his laboratory, uh, which is really is just his home, and, and did experiments with it there and confirmed that, yes, in fact, what he had collected from the clouds was the same static electricity that you could collect by rubbing uh, uh, silk and, and glass or amber and wool or anything like that. So that, that's his contribution. He really opened everybody's eyes to how electricity worked and how it was the movement of charge from one place to another. But he did not. He did not discover electricity.
0: Is it just me, or does this experiment uh, not sound very safe?
1: <laughs> well, it wasn't very safe. And he, uh, he was aware of it. So imagine this. That he, so he's, he's got this kite uh, that's up in the sky, and the, the, the string he has, it's not a wire, it's just a string uh, of twine. That's coming down, but the string conducts electricity somewhat because it's wet. It's wet from the storm, and it comes down and it's connected to a key, you know, like an old style door key of hundred years ago, you know. And from that key, he has also uh, attached a silk ribbon. Now, silk at, at that day was known to be a very good uh, insulator against electricity. So what he did was he held the silk ribbon, not the kite string. So, so the, the static electricity would accumulate on the key and then he would touch the key to the top of the laden jar and the electricity would flow into the laden jar. So he he did protect himself that way. And he did stay, uh, keep himself dry by staying uh, inside a, a little, little shelter. So he stayed dry and um, he held on to this dry, silk ribbon trying to protect his, himself but he couldn't resist bringing his finger close to the key and getting a little shock just to prove to himself that uh, that it was uh, the electricity static electricity just like he felt when he rubbed um glass and, and silk together so yeah but other people who tried to replicate his experiments um died uh, because oh my, they didn't oh take boy. all this precaution. So he's probably most famous for the fact he did it and survived. Um, but, uh, he, you know, he knew better than most uh, about the dangers. In fact, he went on from that experiment to invent the lightning rod, uh, which uh, basically is a similar kind of contraption where you send, you put a, a metal rod into the sky and you connect that to the ground. And uh, in his concept, the rod would attract the electricity, the charge from the cloud, just as the kite had, but this time, instead of going down into a laden jar, it would safely go into the ground. And he thought that you would drain the charge out of the cloud so that it wouldn't be able to produce a lightning bolt. In fact, that's not the way that lightning rods work. They they don't decrease the likelihood of a strike. All they do is they um, provide a, a focal point for the lightning to hit, and then the lightning goes down into the ground. And and to Franklin's credit, he did recognize that that was another mechanism of protection, but he didn't think it was the primary mechanism. He thought it was bleeding charge from the cloud to reduce the likelihood of a strike. We now know that that's not true. Nevertheless, his lightning rod was tremendously successful Um, Lightning was a major cause of fire and death um, before its invention, particularly in high buildings and church steeples and things like that. His invention spread wildly across the the world and saved many, many lives. And this is part of the reason he became such a famous person. It's because of his experiments with the kite and the lightning rod, which had very practical advantages. And people could document that it worked because people kept records of how many times church steeples have been hit and, and destroyed over the centuries. And so they knew that that these these steeples were hit all the time. And when they put when they put the lightning rods, that was the end. That was the end of, of losing churches to lightning. So um, yeah, he he made major contributions to um, the elect field of electricity. Uh, but once again I I emphasize he did not discover electricity. <laughs>
0: So then what role does electricity play in our biology?
1: That's an interesting story, too, because um, it all started with frogs. (laughs) So um, people started to uh, do scientists started to do work with frogs, and particularly frog legs, severed frog legs. And they showed that if you used with static electricity, you could get the frog leg to move, to twitch. You know, um, get a muscle contraction with the electricity. So they knew there was some relationship between at least muscle contraction and presumably the nervous system and electricity, but they didn't know what that relationship was. And um, this uh, phenomena was made f- most famous by a feud between two Italian scientists. Um, And um, one of the scientists, Galvani, uh, claimed that uh, he was doing experiments where he's putting frog legs on hooks and getting them to move in various ways. And he claimed that the frog legs themselves were producing electricity. And he called it animal electricity. And this got a lot of attention, animals produce electricity. And um, let let, let me make it clear, people knew that animals could make something like electricity because they were familiar with, um, with the torpedo fish in the Mediterranean and electric eels from South America, that these animals gave sensations that that felt exactly like the shock you would get from a Leyden jar filled with static electricity. So that wasn't the issue. The issue was whether or not other animals that didn't have an electricity producing organ could also produce electricity. So Galvani claimed that they could. Another Italian scientist Volta said, no, they cannot, <laughs> okay? Absolutely not. And what he um, recognized was that uh, static electricity um, is hard not to produce, what Volta recognized. When you pet, pet a cat, you make static electricity. When you comb your hair, you make static electricity. You wear a wool sweater, you make static electricity. And so he believed that, and he knew from his own experiments, that you have to be very, very vigorous when you're doing electrical experiments to make sure that you have not, you have not uh, introduced the artifact of static electricity somewhere in your experiment. And when he heard how Galvani did his experiments with frogs, where he hung the frog leg on a brass hook that was connected to an iron fence, he realized that Galvani had an artifact. And the artifact, because Volta knew that if you put two dissimilar metals together, that you will get a flow of electricity, which is ultimately became the basis of the battery he later discovered, okay? And so it was Volta that said, no, animals don't make their own electricity. Uh, It's, uh, you're just producing static electricity as an artifact. And that was the explanation for uh, for Galvani's. Um, But interestingly enough, uh, later on, uh, Volta, who, who is the uh, who went on to discover what we now know as the uh, uh, the electrochemical battery? Um, tried to exploit this by he wanted to make an artificial electric eel organ. He wanted to make so he knew the electric eels had an org, had organ that produced electricity, and he wanted to produce an artificial one as a means of generating electricity. So he, if you if you take an, an eel and you cut out its electrical organ, and you 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 look at it, it looks it looks like it's a series of discs um, one after another, and um, he 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 believed that it was this alternation of materials in the eel's electrical organ that was producing the electricity. And so he started stacking discs made of different metals, all types of metals, he punched them out. So it had like little coins of different metals and he started stacking them in different combinations, trying to simulate what was happening um, with the electric eel. And eventually by accident, he discovered that if you pair zinc with copper so you alternate zinc, copper, zinc, copper. And between the, the, the zinc copper pairs, you put a piece of paper, a paper disc that is wetted with salt water. Salt, salt water is, conducts electricity. You can generate electricity. And that was the first battery, what we now call a battery. Um, he, interestingly enough, didn't call it a battery. He called it an artificial electric eel organ and his, his publication was the, the, the invention of an artificial electric eel organ. Uh, we now know that it has nothing to do with the way that electric eels produce electricity. Uh, later, people started calling it a pile, because Volta's pile, because he piled these, these disks, actually looked like a pile of disks, so they started calling it a pile. And then later on, uh, people adapted, adopted the terminology battery because that's what Benjamin Franklin had been calling a series of, of Leyden jars. Uh, so any kind of series of electricity producing stuff was called a battery. like a, And that got its origin from military endeavors. You'd have a cannon battery, a battery of cannons in a series. And so battery later got applied to, to Volta's uh, invention. So that's the... Uh, it's not an artificial electric eel organ. <laughs> it's an electrochemical, uh, it's electrochemical uh, device. And that became the second way of producing electricity. So the first way was static electricity, which is all that poor Benjamin Franklin had at his disposal. And uh, the second way is to produce a, uh, an electrochemical battery, which is what Volta, uh, Volta invented.
0: So, some, what are some of the mo- more fascinating or uh, something that really caught your eye in terms of discoveries or inventions in uh, this field?
1: Well, I'm always kind of um, attracted to um, misconceptions that are widely held. Like, for example, I've already told you about uh, the misconception that um, Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity. Another misconception I think, um, that, uh, is, is, frequently perpetrated is, um, the idea of the ACDC wars. So, um, we make a big deal, at least in the United States about Thomas Edison, who was our most famous inventor and, um, and Westinghouse, which was a, his rival at the time. And, um, we call this the Westinghouse-Edison-AC-DC wars, okay? So AC refers to alternating current, and DC refers to direct current. And um, this is been widely portrayed. There are movies about the ACDC wars and all of that, and it's generally portrayed as being a, a political rivalry between two uh, industrialists who are trying to get their favorite mode of electrical current adopted as the standard in the United States. And um, so there's a lot of political tri- intrigue, but um, the fact of the matter is <laughs> that the um, that Edison was doomed in his desire to make DC the current standard, because it it just wasn't going to work for long distance transmission of electricity, whereas AC was. And the reason for this is uh, is technological. So uh, if you want to transmit electrical power a lot of electrical power. You can do it one of two ways. You can do it with high voltage and low amperage, or you can do it with high amperage and low voltage. Um, Amperage times voltage gives you the power. And so it doesn't really, theoretically it doesn't make any difference. What does make a difference though is when you have high amperage uh, going through wires, it generates a lot of heat and it's the heat that co- that is lost. That makes transmitting um, power with high uh, with high current um, so inefficient. So the best way to transmit current is at high voltage and, and lower amperage. And so um, that's what that's the real technological advantage. The problem at that time was that. Um, that it was possible to use a transformer. So, so you, get, you want high voltage to go out to the homes, right? But you don't want high voltages to come into the homes, right? That can't be used. High voltage can't be used in the homes. For example, a typical light bulb can only use about 110 volts. And, um, and so you don't want high voltage when it goes into the homes. So at the time there was a way to transmit voltage and then and then transform it from high to low to go into the homes. Uh, for alternating current, but not for direct current. So if you transmitted direct current at high voltage, when it got to the homes, it would have to, there was no way to to step it down. And so that was the real problem uh, Edison had. He had hitched his wagon to the wrong mode of current delivery. Consequently, his current would, he had to build many, many more power stations because the current just wasn't going to go very far. And that's what really doomed him. And even if there hadn't been all the politics, and even if there hadn't been all the great sensationalism, Edison would have lost out for technological reasons. It wasn't until the mid-20th century that a way to easily convert uh, direct current uh, at, local, at a local location became available, whereas the means to do that for alternating current was invented in the 1880s. So um, so yeah, so that's that's the real reason. So it's these little technical uh, nuggets that seem to get overlooked um, i mean that's basically the the bottom line on the acdc story edison was doomed because of the of the of the uh, the lack of a transformer for for direct current um, but um, if you read books and stories about this uh, i mean one of my favorite science writers who um usually favorite science writer disappointed me recently because uh, in a book he said that the acdc awards were all about the thickness of copper wires and the price of copper which is not not true at all so everybody tends to make short shrift of it because it i guess it is a concept that's uh that's not easy to grasp if you haven't been thinking about these things, but nevertheless, the uh, the truth of the matter is that the technology just wasn't there for DC to become um, become uh, a mode of transportation, transport of, of, of power now uh, then, but we could do it now because there are means of doing it, but we're so committed to alternating current now that it's very hard to go back. So, uh, so alternating current remains the, uh, the current of the day for transmitting electrical power.
0: No, I love being pedantic about uh, these small details. I think <laughs> it's great. Uh,
1: you can talk about them at cocktail parties now. <laughs> Somebody, uh, <laughs> it, if the AC/DC wars ever come up, <laughs> you can. Uh, I think there's a. I think there's a, a movie, uh, but, and Benjamin Cumberbatch stars in. I haven't seen the movie, but I think it is also about the ACDC wars I I doubt that this uh, that this little uh, nugget of of science that uh, comes out in that movie though it seems not conducive to a movie audience
0: oh they should have had you as a consultant <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, it probably would have lost The movie probably would have lost more money than it already did I don't think it was a very popular movie
0: <laughs> so how significant is it for us to understand and uh, sort of apply the knowledge of the electricity that we have gathered, especially in the fields like medicine, for example?
1: Well, you know, in, in medicine, so one thing that I have learned in both doing uh, radiation studies um, and, uh, and doing research into electricity is that people love to apply any new scientific discovery, regardless of what it is, as a health treatment. I mean, they, they see potential, a tremendous potential. It was true with radiation, and it was also true with electricity. Um, people believed um, that electricity um, could give you all types of health benefits. And in the early uh, part of the 19th century, um, there was uh, a a huge number of electrical treatments for just about every human disease. Um, one book that I found, uh, in fact, the, 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 there was a sci- there was a medical specialty called electrician, okay? They, they called themselves electricians. Now electrician means quite some, something quite different today, but that was a medical specialty. And one textbook that I found had um, a treatment for just about everything. Except the only thing that the author would concede to is that electricity did not work for to, for treating gout. <laughs> so, but other than that, uh, electricity uh, covered it all. And um, it, the problem is that uh, in claiming to in claiming to treat everything, um, when it became evident that electricity was not curing some things at all and perhaps even making things worse, um, it, the conclusion was that electricity could cure nothing, which is very far from the truth. But um, but the profession was so stained that um, basically treatments with electricity kind of disappeared for uh, half a century and um, uh, because of the, the stigma associated with the early quacks. And if you go on to the internet and you put electricity quack devices, you'll see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them come up. They were all sold uh, in the early 1800s. And, um, but uh, now uh, it, it turns out that electricity ha- is being used for many, many things, okay? Uh, just some of the things that I talk about in the book is, um, is control of um, prostheses. So um, for amputees, like arm, uh, people who have arm amputations, uh, elect, the nervous system sends an electrical signal down the nerve to the arm to tell the arm to close the, the, the hand, let's say, to make a fist, but the forearm is missing. So um, what's, what's being done is artificial prostheses are being made where that nervous signal is being converted into an electronic signal uh, through something called a brain machine interface. And that electronic signal is giving instructions to little motors in the prosthetic hand to close. So the patient thinks about closing his hand, his or her hand, just like you, you would do now. You don't consciously, you just, you just sit. You're going to close your hand, but your brain has told your hand to close in the same way. In the very same way, this signal that was formerly unused because there was no longer a hand there is now being repurposed to power the prosthesis. And these are um, these are the these devices are being um, developed um, in many laboratories around the world, and um, I think they're soon going to make their appearance um, to the public. Um, obstacles to that still are two things. First of all, they're extremely costly to make. So it might cost a couple of hundred thousand dollars, um, to get one of these. And the second thing is that, um, battery power lifetime is still a problem and the weight is still a problem. So, um, so when, the, when the, the weight of the device can be reduced so it's more like the weight of a normal human arm when the battery power doesn't have to be charged every four hours you know and the cost comes down I think these are going to find widespread use in the population but it's not it's not going to be long before that happens other uses of electricity electricity is being very successfully used to treat Parkinson's, Disease with deep brain stimulation, and so in this uh, in this procedure, electrodes are 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 inserted uh, deep into the brain. That's hence the name deep brain stimulation. And by controlling uh, electrical current to to the apartment the, the the part of the brain that's controlling the tremors. the the tremors can be reduced, if not eliminated. And um, the nice thing about it is it's reversible. So if for some reason it's not working or it becomes a problem, you can remove the wires and the patient is no worse for wear. And that's becoming very, um, very uh, commonly used too. Um, Cochlear implants, now we're using, cochlear implants are electronic devices that are put in the inner ear um, in in an organ called the cochlea. And, um, and th- these uh, devices take uh, signals that are picked up by microphones, convert them to electrical signals that get sent to the inner ear and are recognized as sound by the brain. And um, these used to be only implanted in adults, but now, now children as young as six months or even younger are getting these cochlear implants. And they're, this allows them to grow up with normal speech Whereas before, if you if you grew up without being able to hear, even if it was remedied later in life, um, you wouldn't have normal speech. And so um, all of these, uh, another thing is electroconvulsive therapy. So um, the public generally knows this by an erroneous term called shock therapy. It is not shock therapy. Shock therapy is something completely different, but electroconvulsive therapy is where um Uh, electricity is used to, um, produce a, uh, a, a seizure and, um, under anesthesia uh, under total anesthesia. So the patient isn't aware that this is happening, but a, a seizure is being induced in the brain. And, um, and then when they come out of that, um, they are, it's used to treat depression and it's very, very successfully used to treat depression for those patients who have not, um, who have not responded to drug treatments. Um, This is considered an option and it's, and it's a very good option. In fact, it's considered so good that people don't even do clinical trials on it it anymore because it's considered unethical uh, to deny this to the control group. So, so this is, um, these are, Big success stories for the use of electricity in the treatment of disease. Um, I've just hit some of the big ones. Um, if your listeners are interested in more, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health in the United States has a webpage where they list all the different uh, research that they fund um, applying electricity to disease. And um, I, I, I haven't systematically evaluated reviewed all of them, but I would say there's barely an organ of the body that is not on that list, and I don't remember if there's a, if gout
0: was there, but I suspect not so as electricity sometimes can be thought of as magic, so we don't really know what's happening and how it does things like in deep brain stimulation, so what would you like to see in the future something you know kind of magical that we can can use it for
1: well the um the thing that's gotten the most attention, I think is uh putting, uh, doing high density electrode implants in the brain. Um, Now, currently low density uh, electrode uh, implants are done to alleviate various things, including uh, there are a lot of experiments restoring sight to blind people. So the idea here is that a camera signal is um, if a person can, uh, is there something wrong with a person's eyes, that the brain can't get a signal from the eyes? A camera electronic signal can be sent to the, the visual cortex of the brain and um, can uh, produce a visual image for um, that person. Now currently, the resolution of that is very, very low. So I actually had dinner with someone who is in a clinical trial that has one of these devices. So he's totally blind, and he wears glasses that have a little camera, like a, a camera from like a cell phone, that are, is on the bridge of the of the glasses. So you don't even notice that that it's there. And those glasses are connected to a. Um, to a device that's, that converts the image that the camera sees to, um, to a signal for the electrodes that are planted in his brain. So, to give you an idea of the resolution, I mean, he can't see uh, normally, um, but he can see things. Um, he, can, he can see things like whether a person is in front of him, whether there are steps there, that, that his dinner plate is in front of him. Um, and when I had dinner with him, um, I was hard pressed to tell that he was totally blind. He could see well enough to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, have a conversation with the rest of the table without any indication that he wasn't actually fully seeing us. And to get an idea of the resolution of this, so he only has 64 electrodes implanted in his visual cortex. Now, it, imagine a chessboard. So a chessboard has 64 squares on it. So imagine if you were trying to make an image by putting uh, you know, chessmen on the board or checkers on the board to make a 64 pixel image. This is what he sees, but he's delighted with this because he couldn't see it all before. Now, can you imagine if you increase the, uh, the electrode density in his visual cortex from 64 to 640, how much better the image would be? 6,400, okay? Well, well, now, um, companies like, um, uh, Neuralink, Neuralink, there are other companies and I, and I don't mean to take the, um, attention away from them that are doing similar things, but, um, Neuralink is a company that is, uh, that is one of, uh, Elon Musk's uh, endeavors. Elon Musk, of course, is very famous for his Tesla cars and all that. So now he's involved with, uh, brain implants too, and his company puts, can put, uh, well, um, 10,000 or more electrodes in the visual cortex of the brain. So um, imagine what you can do with that technology. And they've already done these experiments in, in pigs and monkeys and, and shown a proof of principle. He hopes to have this in clinical trials um, later this year um, Vision is just one of the goals of this company. Uh, Musk claims that he can, uh, that ultimately will be able to treat every neurological disease um, with this type of technology. Well, of course, uh, Musk is tend to overstatement, but um, even if just a few of them, a few diseases were amenable to this type of treatment, um, it seems like the future is bright. And this is, uh, this is no more invasive, his technology, is no more invasive than the current technology that puts only 64 uh electrodes in the brain and um so um yeah i think there's a tremendous amount of potential um people worry about this technology because imagine putting electrodes in the brain and and, in other areas of the brain and be able to control people's thoughts and emotions and things like that so um it's very uh futuristic and uh Dystopian the vision that you can come across with electrons, uh, electrodes in the brain, but there are some real, real promise there too to relieve a lot of, um, of suffering, human suffering, with electricity.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. These technologies are just fascinating, and uh, even in in my university, um, uh, we had the implants um, made for the spinal cord that allowed paralyzed people to walk.
1: Yes, it is truly amazing. And, um, and uh, you know, it's interesting what you're saying before. Um, a lot of times we don't know how the technology works, all right? It, it works. Like we don't really know exactly how deep brain stimulation or electroconvulsive therapy relieves these symptoms in people. But nevertheless, they do work. And we can't wait until we know exactly how it worked. For example, with regard to electricity, um, when the electric power industry was born, we didn't know anything about the electron. <laughs> Nobody knew how electricity worked. Nobody knew about electrons. Electrons weren't, weren't discovered until like 1905. So we had a complete, we had the telephone, we had the telegraph, we had a le- complete electrical power industry, we had the phonograph, all of that before anyone had ever discovered the, the electron. And the electron of course is, is the fundamental mechanism by which it all works. So I think that um, if we wait to the point where we understand exactly how the brain works, um, we'll miss a lot of opportunities because some of this technology is going to allow us to, better understand how the brain works, just as, uh, as back in the frog leg days, the electricity let people under, better understand how, how muscles responded to electricity. So um, I think that the future is very bright for uh, electrical treatment of all kinds of diseases. And uh, we're gonna see a lot of, of, um, of advances in this area over the next decade.
0: And what discoveries during your journey to writing your book, Spock, surprised you the most?
1: I was surprised that, I mean, when I started writing it, I knew about these prostheses. I knew about brain implants. I just did not realize how fully developed these technologies are. I mean, these uh, particularly... The, uh, the prosthetics. So I just talked about movement, for example. Earlier, I talked about how the brain could control the movement of muscles in the prosthetic arm to have the hand, the prosthetic hand close. Now, there is technology being developed uh, primarily at the University of Utah, but other places too, where these prostheses can actually give you a sense of touch. So you can feel just like you can with your hand as remarkable as that sounds. And that overcomes a tremendous problem. So when you go to pick up a egg or let's say a wine glass, when you pick it up, why don't you crush it? Why don't you crush the wine glass? Well, you don't crush the glass because you get, a, you get some feedback in pressure sensors in your fingers. So you know when you're squeezing it too tightly. But a person with a prosthetic hand, if they don't have any touch sensation, doesn't get that feedback. So they go to pick up a glass and unless they've trained, they can pick up the glass and crush it. So, um, but these new devices are allowing the signals to go in the opposite direction. Instead of just from the brain to the hand to control the motor movements, there are sensors in the fingertips of these prostheses That send a signal that goes to the to the sensory nerves that produces the same sensation as a a normal finger touch would. Okay. And some of the things are pressure, you know, touch is a very complicated sense. I mean, it's it's not just pressure, like I've said, it also involves heat. Um, uh, it also involves uh, vibration. All of these things are different uh, types of sensory nerves that are in, in fingers. And, um, and so uh, it's very complicated to tease these out with sensors, but nevertheless, um, this is being done. And so that's what surprised me the most, how fully developed this technology was. Yes, there are obstacles, technical obstacles. Yes, there are cost obstacles. Um, and, um, but many of these things, I mean, for example, the battery problem. You know, I mean, ideally, you would charge this your prosthetic arm once a week and wear it for a week and then charge it on Sundays or whatever. Um, so a prosthetic arm that has to be recharged every three hours is not very practical, but as we develop better and better batteries and the need for batteries is, is ubiquitous, right? From, from battery operated cars to spaceships, everywhere needs better batteries. So as these better batteries are developed, that the, the the beneficiaries are going to be all these other technologies including including the prosthetic limbs so um it, so my point is that it, we're not just reliant on the prosthetic limb scientists to come up with a solution to the batteries other people are working on these problems as well and and everyone will jointly benefit by, by these advances in technology
0: so you mentioned that in the 19th i think century that there were so many different uh, sort of medical for medical devices that use electricity. So did you get tempted to try any of those, something like Henderson's fantabulous eyelid electrocutor?
1: <laughs> Actually, I, I did try one and, um, and I talk about it in my book. Um, and uh, so in Spark, um, one of the chapters is about uh, these devices and there is a, there's a guy, um, down in Florida who has a private collection of, um, of he's collected all these types of medical devices. So he graciously, um, he graciously invited me to go down there. I don't want to reveal his name or location <laughs> in public, but he invited me to come down and, uh, see his museum of these various devices. And he had one in particular, um, that was that um he invited me to uh so the neat thing about his collection is many people collect these devices but none of them are working you know it's like someone who collects telephones but none of the telephones work but he has restored them all so most of what he has is actually working and one of the ones he had was something called the electric breeze which was used for mental disorders um either either psychological disorders or headaches, anything that had to do with your head. And the way this worked was you you stand on an insulating platform. So the platform is just a a square of wood that has peg legs made of glass. So it's like a a little stool with glass legs to insulate from the ground. And then um, what you do is you stand on this and you put your hand on one electrode and he lowers a another electrode from over your head to just above your head so so this electrode is is imagine um, a crown you know like like king arthur's crown you know with the teeth and now except that it's upside down so now it, it looks like it's a shark is about to bite your head and um what he does is he lowers that just above your head and electricity flows from that electrode into your head down down your own. Down your arm, and so the feeling when that happens, like your shirt clings to your body, and it does feel like a breeze. It doesn't feel like shocking. It feels like a breeze. That's why it's called electric breeze. And the neat part about it is, if you shut the the um, the lights off in the room, you see a blue corona around your head. Okay, and so um, the the effect is quite amazing, and it's all worked with a crank. Machine, you, you turn this crank machine that generates the electricity, and um, and they decide when the when the uh, the voltage is correct by moving the two electrodes together, and when they start to see sparks jumping from one to the other, they know the voltage is correct. This is how crude it is, and then you sit there, and then depending, and these were used by electricians like i told you before they used to call doctors electricians so the electrician would have one in his office and you get up there and he'd treat you for this head disease and then and you go home and come back for another treatment and every time you came back for a treatment you'd get a, have to pay him again but um, it was actually quite a pleasant sensation but there are other types of things that i was not willing to uh to uh to participate in and uh they have uh it seems that many, many devices were made to create, um, to, to treat sexual disorders of, of every type, and and it, and it involves a very painful application of electricity to the genitals, with all types of, as you can imagine weird contraptions to do that and so this was supposed to treat anything from impotence to uh, i guess infertility these devices were and and they were quite painful and in fact some people claim that um because they were painful you knew they were doing something which doesn't make any sense to me but yeah so just about anything you want uh he's uh uh he's got a uh a device there that someone made to, to to treat that section of your body so um very interesting, very interesting.
0: So you experienced electricity on yourself firsthand?
1: I, I did. I experienced, and I didn't notice any outcome. I didn't seem to get any smarter or have any headaches. I, nothing seemed to change for me, but it was an interesting experience to have the electric breeze treatment done on my head.
0: Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So can you tell us, what are you currently working on? And what will be your next project?
1: Well, um, in terms of books um, i uh, I don't know um, you know every when I've written each of one of these books, I was so exhausted um, from the process when I finished I never again you know but you um, know <laughs> I'm starting to think now um, in, in researching the electricity book i I learned a lot, believe it or not, about another uh, area of, of physics that that's related, and that is um, sound and sound waves and Uh, sound has similar, um, again, people discover things about sound and they've also been given medical applications. Um, now, you know, that there, there are treatments with sound for various diseases. Most of them are, I believe to be hoaxes, but also sound is used. For example, ultrasound, um, is used to image, you know, particularly, um, uh, fetuses in the womb or ultrasound is used uh, as considered a safe method to to, to, develop, to have images of internal parts of the body. And then there's concerns about health too, from like, like so that's ultrasound, but then there's infrasound, these very low frequency sounds that are produced by, um, for example, wind turbines, you know, windmills that are generating electricity, they produce, um, they produce uh, infrasound. And um, there's been some concern that that can have adverse health effects. So there's a, you know, I, I try to, when I look at in, in, in all the topics, that my two books, and, 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 and if I do the sound one, my third one, I try to have the book have a three-legged stool. It has to have something to do with a physical science. It has to have something to do with health. I am in a medical school and I do do physical science type things, so it has to have those two things. But it also has to have um, good stories because I embed the scientific information within um, human interest stories. Um, so I try to tell the people. So when I talk about the prosthetics in my book, for example, in spark, I, um, I, I I introduce you to a person who has, who has gotten a prosthesis. I introduce you to the guy who has this vision device implanted in his brain, you know, so that it becomes personal. It's not just not a scientific fact. So if sound turns out to have, um, good science and, um, and interesting stories and a health angle, then maybe I'll do a book on sound.
0: Oh, that sounds super exciting.
1: Well, thank you for talking with me, Galena. Um,
0: what would be the best way then for people to find out more information about your work and also your books?
1: Okay, it's the easiest way would just be to go to my website, which is timothyjorgensen.com. So um, now spelling of my name, the name is Danish, Jorgensen. Um, I, I think Danes would pronounce it Jonsen but um, the point is that because it's Danish, it's S E N, not S O N. So it's Timothy J O R G E N S E N dot com, and that will take you to my website. They can get all the information from that.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure, and um, and good luck with your your book podcast.